Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is by G. Wayne Miller for the Providence Journal. My name is Ashish John. I'm the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. And you come to Rhode Island and to Brown from Harvard. Can you just tell us briefly what you did there? You were certainly high profile in a lot of areas. Well, um, I, you know, I, I've spent my entire career there. Uh, professionally, it's the only place I've worked. Uh, I was uh, there for 16 years, started off as a brand spanking new assistant professor, um, made my way through the... Uh, through the academy and, and eventually in the last five, six years um, was leading the Harvard Global Health Institute, um, which was really a, a multidisciplinary approach to working on broad issues of, of global public health. So realizing that you've just started at Brown School of Public Health as the new dean, do you have any ideas yet, directions you want to go? Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I do. And I think, uh, first of all, um, you know, one of my um, uh, one of my mentors uh, is a guy named Julio Frank, uh, who's now president of the University of Miami. And, and I was chatting with him and getting advice about the job because he was dean of the School of Public Health at Harvard. And he said, first thing, Ashish, don't break whatever's working. And I was like, that's good advice. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot that's working really well at the Brown School of Public Health. And, and my first goal is don't mess that up. Uh, so I think on really critical issues like aging, a uh, huge demographic issue for the whole world, certainly in the United States, fabulous work happening on the cutting edge of how do we take care of an older population over time. Incredible work happening around uh, substance abuse, addiction, opioids, alcohol, not going to mess with that. Like that stuff is just great. And I think it's obviously super important. It's going to keep going. And my goal is to try to really bolster that. But there are some areas that I think are new to public health. Public health has not um, taken them on in the, in the ways that I think the public health community needs to. Uh, one particular that I want to highlight, and that's climate change. So I really believe climate change is the biggest public health threat of the 21st century. Uh, you know, we think of climate change as, you know, warmer temperatures and sea level rises. And of course, it's those things. But climate change for most of us will be felt in more asthma in kids, in new disease vectors that show up, uh, in the ways that uh, nutritional content of food will change uh, because of climate change that will have all these other health effects. In large parts of the world, it's about running out of water. It's about migration. So there are these massive effects that are coming from climate change really isn't, I think, enough being done in the public health community. And I think, uh, because we're going to, again, we're going to feel those effects right here in Rhode Island, uh, but we're going to, uh, so we've got to work on mitigating those, but then we also want to be, a, a, I think, a global leader in thinking about that intersection between climate and health. Um, second area, which, of course, is near and dear to my heart, because I've been working on pandemics and pandemic preparedness for years, 
uh, for the last five years, actually one of the major initiatives of the Global Health Institute was all about preparing the world for the next pandemic. Uh, and I feel like on some level we failed because we laid out a whole set of plans and of what the world needed to be doing. Uh, you know, three years ago, two years ago, I was talking about we're gonna have a pandemic in the next decade. We've got to get ready. Um, in 2015, I put together a course at Harvard in which I asked all these global experts if we have a pandemic in five years. I didn't know it was going to be in 2020 when I asked that question in 2015. Um, and, uh, and the bottom line is, unfortunately, a lot of the things that, that we had been talking about uh, weren't done by the policymakers and by the political leaders. So I, I want to think about that and I want to think about at, at the Brown School of Public Health and really actually at the university how do we build a center on pandemic preparedness and response uh, that really can be forward-looking, that can uh, pull together data evidence about what we ought to do, but then also engage with political scientists and economists on how do we make sure our political leaders actually do those things in the future, as opposed to nice white papers of here's what needs to be done and then no one does it, right? Um, so there's a whole lot of other ideas. One last thing I will just quickly mention, because I think it's such a uh, an unusual opportunity here, um, Wayne, which is, you know, there's been a, this whole data science revolution that has transformed every other industry. Um, it's still pretty slow in how it has affected healthcare. And um, there is a unique opportunity for Rhode Island with what's happening with our healthcare systems. And again, I'm not, I'm not intimately involved, but I can read the newspapers, you know, like everybody else. And, and I see the signal of what's happening with Lifespan and Care New England. Um, I hear very clearly from the governor a desire to really have a much more integrated healthcare delivery system uh, that's less competitive and more, um, um, you know, more focused on improving the health of the population of Rhode Island. Uh, I think we've made these incredible gains in, in um, data science. And there's this huge strength at the Brown University, the university at the School of Public Health, in computer science and machine learning. I think just as Massachusetts in 2006 became a model for how you get to universal coverage and then the rest of the country followed five years later, I believe Rhode Island can be the model for how you use data to drive improvements in population health drive reductions in inequities in a way that the rest of the country will follow in the in the years to follow in the years to come so i think that opportunity exists and we're the right people in the right place to do it so i want to think about how do we as a school of public health play an enabling role in that and as you mentioned there are already many people here who are working in this direction megan ranny uh for example i know you know her well really? so so you have, a, you have a lot of resources and people here, which is a great thing. I want to go back to pandemics just for a moment. Yes. History, long history, going back to, to ancient history, shows us that there will be another pandemic. COVID will eventually pass. Yep. That is not the end of the pandemic story. Talk about that, because that really goes to the heart of preparedness. I, I don't want people to think we get through this one and then, phew, we won't have anything until no. we have another like 1918. Not true. Not true. No, exactly right. And I have been saying actually for five years, seven years, since I've really gotten into this field, that we are entering an age of pandemics. Um, and let me explain why. The number of disease outbreaks happening in the world has been steadily rising, partly actually because of climate change. So coming back to that other topic. But even if we set climate change aside, 
um, the single fundamentally most important reason is globalization. You know, in 2003, that SARS outbreak, the previous uh, SARS outbreak, the reason it was much more limited was China was a very different country in 2003, had about one-tenth the global travel that it has right now. And so it took months for that disease to spread across the country and, and, and in other parts of the world. This one's also much more infectious. That's the other reason. But the bottom line is in a highly globalized world, we should absolutely expect that disease outbreaks in one place become disease outbreaks everywhere. And, um, and I see nothing about our world that makes me think we're gonna be less globalized, we're gonna have less world travel, we're gonna have less trade 10 years from now than we do today. China has really become uh, a global uh, economic kind of powerhouse. India is coming online. Many African countries are gonna come online we're gonna to have to live in a very different environment in terms of pandemics. COVID-19, as hard as it is, uh, is not, not the last one. I don't think it's the last one in the next decade. I think we're gonna see one, another one in the next decade. And we certainly saw, as you referenced, coronavirus was identified in China in December, and we now know it was already in the United States in January. So, exactly. so that, that demonstrates, you know, succinctly the point you made there. Yep. Talk about health inequities. You mentioned that before. That is also, along with climate change, uh, a critical issue yep. across, across the country, in the state of Rhode Island, and across the world. Yep. No, this is, this is a, a massive issue and something that I think the School of Public Health is particularly well poised to address. Um, and there are several aspects of that uh, seen kind of most Basically, uh, what, you, what we know is the zip code that you're born into has a profound effect on how long a life you live, how healthy you are in your lifetime, what the opportunities for a healthy living are. And I think most Americans look at that and feel like that's deeply unfair. Uh, we believe that you should set your own destiny and your environment should not be so confining. And yet we know that that is what happens. And there's a whole set of reasons behind that, right? Uh, history of, of racism, of, of where we have uh, allowed people of different races and ethnicities to be able to live, the economic opportunities. So the social determinants are really very, very prominent. And we have to think about what, how do we invest in social determinants in a way that bring up uh, the health and well-being of, of all Americans. Uh, second issue, though, beyond social determinants, is we also just need a healthcare system that's responsive to the needs of populations uh, that are poor, that are less advantaged, um, where there are issues of cultural competency. And all of that is happening across the nation. You know, when I think about the kind of things we should be doing in Rhode Island, what I would like, and again, I think the opportunities here, it's the right size, it's got the right political leadership, uh, it's got the right scientific uh, leadership. Um, I want to see why can't be the one be the first state that really eliminates uh, inequities in care. Right now, we have vast differences in infant mortality, in what happens to women at childbirth, uh, life expectancy. We we are small enough, Wayne, that I think we can address these things in a way that a California or New York or certainly even even a Massachusetts, our neighbor to the north, uh, is going to have a much harder time. Uh, I'd like to figure out how we as a school can really engage in that effort uh, and be, be a model so that other people stop making the excuse of we can't do these things. They're entrenched. 
They are hard, but I think we can solve them. Outstanding. <clears throat> the last area I wanted to get into in this conversation, which will not be the last we'll ever have. I hope not. It, it won't. And I'm not going to use that in the recording. I'll <laughs> edit that out. But let's talk about the current pandemic. Yeah. Uh, first of all, what do you foresee for the fall and winter in Rhode Island, the country, and the world? Understanding, recognizing, of course, that forecasting and predicting is is uh, is a difficult uh, task at best but generally speaking what what are you looking at what are you thinking we're going to be experiencing yeah great question so i am cautiously optimistic about rhode island uh into the fall and winter and and one might be surprised to hear that because uh there are a lot of factors working against us so let's actually just lay out the factors that are working against us that should make us concerned. And then I'll tell you why I am cautiously optimistic that we're going to get through it okay. Um, so what we know is that this virus spreads when large numbers of people spend time together indoors. What we also know about where we live and where we work in Rhode Island is uh, that it is going to get colder as the, as the months come along, right? That maybe September is still a time where most people can spend most time outdoors, but by October it starts getting a little harder and by November and December, it's cold enough that people are spending a lot of time indoors. And so there's real concern that the virus is, is gonna start spreading more efficiently and we're gonna see big upticks in cases. That's the dreaded second wave that everybody talks about. There's of course, throw on top of that the flu season. The flu season comes right around the same time and we're gonna have uh, flu always stresses our hospitals and then throw on top of that COVID. And there is a scenario and a story to be told that we are going to have an awful fall and winter and it's going to be really, really hard. And we have to hunker down and try to get through the spring until the spring. That, I get that scenario. I, I understand it. Now, let me give you my slightly more optimistic version of why it, if we play our cards right, it shouldn't be terrible. It's going to be hard. I don't, I don't want to, there's no sugarcoating. This. It's not going to be an easy fall and winter. Um, first is uh, everybody's got to get their flu shot. If everybody gets their flu shot, I think it'll make uh, this season a bit better. Second, we're doing a moderate amount of social distancing and hand washing and mask wearing. And if we keep that up, not only is that helpful for COVID, it'll help with the flu as well. And so we could get lucky and have a pretty mild flu season. Again, I'm not counting on it, but I'm hopeful that we will. Third is, and I'm just talking about this kind of technology stuff, and then I want to come back to political leadership. The third is I am hopeful that by late fall, when it's really starting to get cold, where it's really hard to do outdoor dining, that we're going to have a lot more testing available, that we're going to be able uh, to test on such a regular basis, large amounts of population, that we'll be able to isolate people much more effectively, and that'll help really slow the spread of the disease. Last, but definitely not least, and why I'm very much more optimistic about Rhode Island than I am about many other states, and I won't name any specific, is political leadership. Governor Raimondo really has been, I think, one of the standouts uh, in terms of responding to data. Uh, and we, we've seen that kind of all throughout the entire outbreak. You know, when the president was tweeting open Michigan or liberate Michigan, liberate, you know, whatever, uh, and pushing states to open, she was very careful and data-driven in her approach. Uh, even this late summer into like in the last three, four weeks, 
the numbers started creeping up in Rhode Island and I, and I'm, you know, I'm on the advisory committee for the Department of Health and others were saying, getting a little nervous, this is heading in the wrong direction. We saw the governor come out, pull back on some things. And so let's say for a second that Wayne, that I'm, I'm wrong, that my optimism turns out not to be that maybe, maybe it is starting to get worse. I expect the governor to act quickly and aggressively to scale back because everything that she has shown me in the last six months tells me she's pretty data-driven and is not going to let things get horrible before she steps in and, and acts. So that political leadership, uh, I think, is to me the backstop of why this will not be a terrible fall and winter. Nothing like what we went through in, in April, May is, I guess, my is my benchmark. Still going to be hard. We are going to see upticks in cases. My hope is we can get kids in school and get them uh, in-person teaching for much of the fall. Would not be surprised as we get into, let's say, late November, December, uh, that it's harder to keep in-person school going. That could easily happen. So I'm not, again, I don't want to be like rosy color. We're not done. You know, it's not going to magically go away. But I see glimmers of hope that make me think we can get through this. Where do we stand, meaning the world, the country, on vaccine development and uh, clinical trials? Yeah, so the good news is it's, it's really cooking along. It's, going, it's moving at, at, a, spa, at a speed uh, that I think um, all of us have been very impressed with. And it's because science is moving fast. As scientists are doing an incredible job. We're moving, we've got uh, clinical trials happening at least two different vaccines have enrolled uh, at least uh, up to 50% of what their targets are. Uh, and my hope or expectations over the next three, four weeks, they'll be fully enrolled. The key at that point will be to watch what happens both on the science and on the political end. There is going to be a very strong set of political pressures applied to the FDA in the two weeks before the election to issue an emergency use authorization. That's already clear. The White House has signaled it, the FDA has signaled it, that they're, they're seriously thinking about that. My take is, look, if the evidence and the science is there and the data is very clear, fine. But what I'm worried about is if they, uh, they kind of heed to political pressure and do it for the wrong reasons, that's gonna have long-term negative effects not just on this vaccine, but on all vaccines and people's confidence in it. So if we just let the science scientific process play out, what I expect is sometime in November, maybe early December, uh, we're gonna get some sort of an approval from the FDA. Uh, and the first group that will start getting vaccinated are healthcare workers, first responders, essential workers. After that, we'll see a little bit what the vaccine data shows us do we want to go to vaccinate elderly people because they're at high risk, but they probably will get less of a robust immune response? Or do you want to vaccinate young people and build up population level immunity very quickly because that'll help protect everybody? There are different strategies people are thinking about. In some ways, we have to draw, let the data of the vaccine and what it's showing us on immunity drive that decision-making. There's a very, I think, complex process to come up with that list of who gets first, who goes second, who goes third. Realistically, I expect that the data will be positive and will be, uh, we'll have a vaccine that's safe and effective identified by the, before the end of this year. And I suspect a majority of us will get vaccinated 
uh, let's say in the first or second quarter of 2021. Final question. Speaking now to the people of Rhode Island, what is your general advice and guidance? Yeah, what I would say is, you know, it's been a hard seven, eight months already. Uh, we're not done with this pandemic. And the key at this point is to not let down your guard and not to, uh, and not to sort of kind of give up on the great things that people have been doing, the social distancing, the mask wearing. I really do think that we're going to have a vaccine by the end of this year, uh, early next year. I think many of us will, most of us will be eligible to get vaccinated. And so I know it's hard, but if we can get through the next four or five months, protect people, uh, stay safe. Yes, it will be a hit to our economy. Uh, yes, it's going to mean that we're going to probably have an, an odd Thanksgiving, an unusual holiday season, won't be the same, will not have the same level of kind of family engagement. It's unfortunate, but the, the alternative is people are going to get sick and die. For me, since we're so close to where we need to be with this vaccine, I want people to hang on, get through the rest of this year. And I really do think 2021 may not be the old normal of 2019, but will be much, much better. And, uh, and so it's worth that extra bit of effort and to not lose hope. Thank you, Ashish, and welcome to Rhode Island. Stay safe. Thank you very much for uh, reaching out and chatting with me. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.